Welcome to the weekly sermon from Generations Church. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Scott Hale. We're glad you're here today. Um, we're going to be tackling some, some sensitive issues this morning. Uh, as you can see, we've been in a series called Side by Side. We're looking at how the gospel of Christ triumphs over the, this, this uh, battle of the sexes. This battle has been raging for thousands of years, all the way since the events of Genesis 3, since the curse. And we've been talking about the relationship between men and women and the ways that, uh, all the different ways that we've allowed sin or culture or theology or misunderstandings of Scripture to divide us rather than bring us together. And today we are tackling uh, another devastating effect of this curse, specifically porn. And it's important that we talk about this, right? Even though everybody feels a degree of discomfort just at the mention of the word, and we start talking about this, and everybody's wanting to look straight ahead and not look at their neighbor beside them, for, you know, it's okay. Can we just say it's okay? Everybody feels weird. It's okay. Um, but it's imp- important that we talk about this, because if we can't come into the church and talk about the freedom that Christ brings us, the freedom from our bondage, from our sin, uh, from, from our struggles, if we can't talk about it in the church, where are we going to talk about it? Amen. The world's not going to talk about the freedom Christ brings us. So that's why it's important. And today I want to go beyond just the message, porn is bad, okay? You probably got that. I'm guessing most of you in, in this room, that wouldn't be a newsflash. You know, if we were just going to say, hey, porn is bad, don't do it. We could close the Bible and leave. But I want to unpack how this virus of porn infects our ability as men and women to relate to each other in love, as God has called us to do. Um, in a little bit, we're also going to hear from someone who uh, has seen firsthand in her professional life the destructive, the destructive results of porn in, their prof- in her profession as a counselor. That's going to be very interesting. And then finally, we're going to talk about healing. We're going to look at healing and how Jesus offers hope to those uh, whom porn has stolen the ability to relate to others in a healthy way. Also want to remind everyone, uh, coming up in two weeks is Q&A Sunday, and uh, really excited about this. Keep your, your questions coming in that have anything to do with this series, uh, about this or other subjects to do with gender, sexuality, um, men and women, uh, scriptures. Maybe there's some scriptures that you need some clarification on. If you need to revisit something that we've already talked about, whatever that is, um, be sure and send in your questions to us. You can email us. You can uh, tweet at us. Uh, the easiest way is through the phone app, hitting the little questions for pastor button right there. And that's super great. And we're going to have a good time. And we're going to try to tackle as many of these questions that we have coming in. We've got a lot of questions coming in. We're going to tackle as many of them as we can. And especially those that there seems to be uh, questions that seem to be representative of a lot of your questions. And so if you're holding back your question because you're like, well, I think somebody else will probably ask that. um, Go ahead and send it to us because that lets us know, okay, that's something that people really, a lot of people really want to know. So go ahead and send us your question. I'm looking forward to that. Okay. Let's talk for uh, a few minutes about, about the problem of porn. What is the big deal? What's the big deal? What we now know is that science is catching up and reporting the same thing that Jesus told us 2,000 years ago, and that is that porn is bad for you. Uh, so way to go, science. Way to catch up. Um, welcome to the party. Uh, uh, there's a 2010 study that tells us that more and more women 
The, the more men and women watch porn, the more they bring these porn-warped values into all their relationships, uh, not just into their sex life, so that women are viewed as, as uh, created to have only submissive or a subordinate role in the workplace, in relationships. It's not just in the bedroom. Um, what porn actually does, it reprograms the brain. And that's what science is showing us now. Porn reprograms the brain to create a new normal in the brain. Uh, it and it actually contributes to this power struggle between men and women that we've been talking about in this series. And we don't really have, you could, there's so many ways to come at this <clears throat> and talk about the, some of the societal effects of, of porn. We don't have time to go into, to dive far into some of those things, uh, everything from sex trafficking that it contributes, uh, uh, teenage prostitution to date rape. Uh, there's a rise in sexual assaults that's directly linked to um, the consumption of porn. There's, there's horrific effects that porn has on our personal lives, and we're going to be uh, concentrating on most of that today, because uh, that's bad enough, what it, the effect it has on our relationships. Study after study has shown that porn use has real damaging effects on real-life intimacy, on real-life intimacy. So what scientists are saying uh, is that they're finally able to study uh, millennials. Millennials are the first generation ever to make it all the way to adulthood with unlimited access to porn. The millennials were the first to become uh, adults with unlimited access to porn all their life. This has never happened in the history of forever. So this is, you know, porn in some sense has always, always been with us, but it's always been something under the radar or here or there. This is, is very unique. And so what we're finding out now <clears throat> is that 20-somethings, 20-somethings are beginning to suffer from ED, uh, porn-induced physiological, biological dysfunction is now an actual thing because there's so much super normal stimuli uh, that it, it makes real life unsatisfying. And that is kind of the way porn works, right? And the typical way, they say, uh, that <clears throat> the porn is consumed is often multiple screens, multiple things happening at the same time, all of this. It's, it's, it's an over, uh, overwhelming stimuli on the brain. So <clears throat> what this is telling us is it makes normal life just sort of boring to, to porn people who, who uh, are addicted to porn. You could be married to a supermodel, and it doesn't matter because porn isn't about uh, a supermodel. It's about 20 supermodels. Uh, it, it, it's 20 different kinds of varieties uh, of things, of persons. And, and by the way, let me say this. If you're a spouse or, or a, a, a partner of somebody who is struggling with porn, uh, please never see that as an attack on your attractiveness. Never see it that way. Because remember, you could be a supermodel. You just can't be 20 supermodels, right? Uh, and you can't be doing 20 things every night, which is what uh, porn leads to. And so this is not a, a commentary on anybody's attractiveness. This is a commentary on no normal person of any sort. Um, <clears throat> actually, nobody can just keep up with the supernormal stimuli that are bombarding the brain through access to porn. So there's a lot of, of terrible effects. Now, I want to uh, give you a chance right now to, to meet one of our very own Miss Stephanie Walsh. She's coming up here. Can everybody give her a big hand? <laughs> uh, 
Stephanie, just introduce yourself. Tell us what you do. Okay. I'm Stephanie Walsh. Hello, church. Um, I am a licensed professional counselor, and I specialize in children counseling, specifically trauma. And so I had some facts I wanted to share with you. He's already stolen a couple of them, but that's okay. (laughs) So according to the Attorney General, a primary pornography consumer group is boys between 12 and 17. And the American Family Association conducted a study, and the average age of first-time contact for pornography for future sex addicts is 11. In my practice, I personally have seen children as young as 10 years old who are already addicted to porn. So 70% of teens have already viewed pornography online. So it's not a matter of if, but when. So the new complication of life, as he mentioned with the millennials, and it's technology, which is enabling more access for younger ages. So we as parents, we don't think twice about handing our kid a phone or some time on the computer. We give our kids this unfettered access to internet, which has, as you know, such an easy access that anybody can stumble on to porn and then become interested and just start searching it. So there are some apps that truly seem harmful. Let me tell you, Instagram, five seconds, you're viewing it. I don't care who you are, five seconds. Don't get me started on Snapchat musically. (laughs) We can talk later about that. Um, There is a myth. So I, he's kind of touched on the science and the brain. I am truly fascinated with the brain and how it works. I've done some research. Um, you, first of all, your brain's not fully developed until your mid-20s, okay? So it's, const, it's continually developing. So viewing pornography, the myth is, does not have an impact on the structure of my brain. That's a myth. The recent scientific research is showing evidence that viewing pornography changes the composition of your brain in a manner similar to the effects that drugs have on your brain. Most young people realize the harmful effects of drugs on the brain, but far fewer realize viewing pornography can have the same effects. It's that dopamine that's released, that's the addiction. I gotta have more of that release. So a lot of professionals, mental health professionals are saying porn is more addicting than cocaine. Let that sink in. So there are apps that you can install and, and use from, to help protect kids from this stuff. One app is called Bark, B-A-R-K, and a website called Canine Protection. That filters porn out of a lot of internet searches. Just check those two out. Bark, Canine Pornography, uh, Canine Protection. No, do Canine Pornography, don't do it. <laughs> Wouldn't recommend it. So, <laughs> statistics. Now, what do you do when your child comes to you and has, shares with you? So, I've been looking at porn. First of all, don't freak out in front of your child. Freak out later when you're alone. However, in talking to them, 
you want to normalize the idea. You're saying, okay, let's talk about this. Allow them to feel like they're not the only one, they're not this island, this doesn't make them change who they are. Letting them know you're going to help them through this. And there are professionals that can help them through this. Parents, I encourage you with, to, to sit down and to share with them. Tell them about your experience. If you struggled with this, that kind of goes with porn, drugs, things that you did in your life. Share. Be real with them your struggle and how you got through or let's work through this together. I will be here if anybody wants to talk further afterwards, questions or whatever. Thank you. Thanks, Steph. All right. That's a sobering fact, some sobering facts there, that um, we actually fashion our, our sexual circuits through our adolescent experiences. Adolescent experiences help create those, those circuits. So it's never too early, never too early to wage war against this epidemic. Sex for many people today in our society has become screen-based. Uh, the, the, the casualty of that is flesh and blood relationships in our life, both romantic relationships and friendships. That's the casualty. Pixels and keyboards are increasingly the catalyst for firing off the, the pleasure centers in our brain instead of, uh, you know, the, the, the touch of one's spouse or the mutual respect of a of a friend. As one person put it, we, our, our challenge is now to learn how to love people more than pixels. How to love people more than pixels. And, it, you know, it comes down to the age-old uh, demon of lust. And lust has always been with us. It's a, it's a human emotion as old as the first human. Lust has always been there. But porn, the difference is, it is the ultimate commodification of lust. Uh, it, it removes every conceivable restraint on human lust. It amplifies its destructive nature to an 11. So, praise God, there is an antidote to the dark side of, of lust, and that antidote is love. It is love. And we're going to talk about that a little bit. For us to find hope and healing in this epidemic in our homes, the gospel of Jesus Christ, I believe, provides the only real answer because the gospel is not about shaming you with the law. Uh, it's about healing you with God's love. That's the gospel. And so love leads us the way. It leads the way out of bondage, out of lust. It teaches us how to relate to each other as men and women across the genders. And so if we want to be people who are led by love, we need to ask, what is love? And today, so we're not... We're not talking about a romantic love, right? It's nothing wrong with romantic love, but that's not the main part of our, our discussion today. We're not talk, asking, how do we know what is being in love? What we're talking about today is an even higher, the, the most sublime type of love there is. It's a type of love Jesus calls us to. In the New Testament, the word used to describe this gospel kingdom kind of love is the word agape. Agape love. 
And agape love is a beautiful thing. It's, it's the kind of love that God has for us whenever it talks about God's divine love for his people, that self-sacrificial love, that God kind of love, agape love. But then what's really incredible is in the scriptures, when we get into the New Testament, it, the, the scriptures, the apostles and Jesus start using this same word to be the kind of love that we are to have for each other. Now, that's supernatural right there. That we're, th- This is the highest love. It's more than just a sentiment. It's more than just a feeling. It's more than just grand thoughts, you know, thinking wonderful things. It's more than even just doing nice things out of duty. We, we could define agape this way. This is how we're going to say it. Love is the choice to relate to someone as valuable. It's the choice to relate to someone as valuable. Love always asks, what is the very best for this person that I see as priceless, as precious. What's the best for this person? There's four words in this little uh, simple definition I want to zero in on. Number one, it's the choice. It's a choice. It's not a feeling. So love is something that we can actively choose to engage in. We don't have to wait to feel something. Love is, is, in fact, it's commanded. And Jesus commands love. And so if he commands it, that must mean it's something, it's a choice I can make. You wouldn't command something that you can't do. So it's a choice I can make. Then it's the choice to relate. So so there's action involved. It's not just about thoughts. It's not just about something I keep inside. It's not not about just something I'm uh, I'm going to think. But it's it's to relate. And then we relate to someone. That's important. Love is a relational concept between persons. Between persons. It's not between a person and a thing. Agape is never between a person and a thing. So I can say I love, you know, bread pudding with ready whip on top, and I love my wife. But those are very different loves, right? Um, one is a delicious dessert. Uh, the, the, the other is, a, is, is my wife. It's a human being. Uh, agape love is between persons. It's not a sentiment that I have about a thing. Now, how pets come into that, I'll leave it up to you. Uh, <clears throat> and then the last part is to relate to this person as valuable. So I'm relating to you now, not because I have to, you know, if I don't, I'm, I'll go to hell or something. No, I'm, I'm, I, I see value in you. I honor you because you are precious. You are someone of infinite value. And you are someone who bears the image of God. And so out of that sense of privilege, I, I want to serve you. That is love. The privilege of loving. So that's love. Lust, on the other hand, resides in the area of pure emotion. If, if love brings into, our, brings into the picture emotion and will and action and all these different things, lust resides in the area of pure emotion. It has the ability to hijack our will and our thoughts. And the word in the New Testament Greek, whenever it talks about lust, this word, epithumia, epithumia. It literally means an intense desire. And when this desire is focused in the wrong direction, that's when we get in trouble. When agape love is always a love towards people. It's, it's right, agape love is towards people. But lust can be towards things or people because it treats them the same. That's important. Agape love is always between people. 
lust. You can have lust for things or people because you treat them the same anyway. Uh, <clears throat> it treats them the same objects for us to possess or consume. Lust treats people as objects to possess or consume. Lust always wants more. It always wants what doesn't belong to it. In the Old Testament, the word they use when they're talking about this sort of thing is the word covet. That's one of the big ten, right? Do, thou shalt not covet. And that's the word they would use. So it's to desire what isn't yours to possess, whether it's people or things. Lust works completely against the biblical principle of gratitude, being grateful for the life that you have, that God has provided for you. It, it breeds a lack of contentment with, with life. It's completely the opposite of gratitude. It's the opposite of what Jesus is wanting to do with us. Jesus offers us the water so that we never thirst again, right? He talked about that. Lust offers you something that will make you never satisfied. You'll never be able to quench that thirst. And so this can affect our relationships with one another. It can affect us as a community. It can affect our families. It certainly affects our male-female dynamic. Um, we're, you know, here at Generations, we're a community of discipleship. We're disciples together. And, th and this idea of lust and this, this porn especially can tear us apart at every scene. It'll erode our ability to trust each other. Uh, it can stifle our growth. This porn, it retrains our brains even in approaching people and things, and it, it retrains our brains to say, what can I get out of it? What can I get out of this person? What can I get out of this, this thing, this video, this picture, whatever it is? How can I get my next fix? Rather than, how can I give back to this person? How can I lay my flesh aside and serve? And so the devil, the devil completely ensnares us in this cycle of of lust and porn and shame and then isolation and this destructive privatization that goes all along with that. Over in Matthew chapter 5, let's look at what Jesus said. He reveals how serious this sin of lust is. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. So there he's referring to one of the, the big 10 commandments there. <clears throat> but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart looks at a woman lustfully. That, that phrase is really interesting. It's literally looks with intent to lust. To look with intent to lust. So this, is, this isn't just to say uh, you notice somebody who's attractive and that's a sin. No, it's, he's not saying that. Oh, that person's attractive. That's not a sin. It's actually what do you do with that attraction? And when you notice something like that, you, you know, you see, you see the, the good-looking person, okay. And then you, the, you, you look back with a focused intent. That's what, that, what Jesus' words literally mean. The focused intent of turning that notice of someone, their, attract, uh, their attractiveness into a new heightened experience. That's when it becomes sin. See, now you're starting to use that person intentionally. You're using them. So feeling attracted to each other is not the issue. That's not the issue. It is intentionally then pursuing that, even if it's only mentally, if it's, if it's consuming with your eyes. What do we do with that? At that point, it becomes a choice. And Jesus says that is when you're choosing to commit adultery with your heart. That's, that's pretty harsh words from Jesus. So what is the answer to this? Well, 
the Apostle Paul has, also has a lot to say about this subject. We're going to look at a few passages, uh, just a few. He has a lot to say, but we're going to look at just a few for the sake of time, and then we'll finish with some practical next steps, because I want to make sure we uh, give you some real good next steps to take. Over in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, Paul says, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, there's that epithumia, and greed, which is idolatry. So notice there's some part we play in this process. He says we put to death. We're not just, we're not just a passive sort of observer of this process, right? Yes, we're saved by Jesus, we're saved by grace, but, and we're empowered by the Holy Spirit, but now we have a role to play in putting to death the works of the flesh. We don't just sit and go, I'm waiting for God to put this feeling to death. We apparently have a role to play, okay? Let's keep reading. Over in Galatians 5, Paul says this, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires, that's epithumia, of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. And he goes on to say that the, these, two, these things are in conflict, so that the Holy Spirit has this desire for you to become like Jesus. But your flesh, which is really a bit of a parasite, uh, it's not the real you. The flesh is not the real you anymore. When you have given your life over to Christ, it has a desire, it has a lust for you, which is contrary to the desire of the Spirit for you to become more like Jesus, right? And that's what we're all after, helping each other become more like Jesus. So let's see what else Paul says here. Um, Okay, this next passage is good. He's talking to his old friend Timothy. Timothy is a a young guy. He's, He's come up before in our series here. Timothy's a young uh, protege. He's a young pastor. Paul's his mentor. And he says in chapter 2, he says, Timothy, flee. Flee. Now that word literally is escape. Escape. Like there's something holding you captive, right? It wants to imprison you, enslave you. Flee. Don't just sort of say, meh, maybe not. And saunter out. (laughs) Flee the evil desires epithumia of youth. Flee the evil desires of youth. Now, this isn't to say that, that uh, lust is only the sin of the young. So don't misunderstand. Timothy is a young pastor, and so he's saying to him, yo, Tim, you know those, those lusts that you think are just normal for your age? No. No, 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 they're not. We are called to a new normal. And so run away from that. I believe if Timothy had been an old man, Paul would have said, Tim, flee those evil desires of the dirty old man, right? (laughs) Lust threatens all ages, right? And we could all, if we were being honest, be, be honest and say that's true. It threatens all ages. But look at the emphasis of what he then says to do instead. Yes, he says, run away from evil, flee evil. But an even greater emphasis here is what to run towards, and that's where he really shines the spotlight. So flee evil and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Righteousness, faith, love, and peace. There is this beautiful life to be had when we step into the world of real relationships. The real world relationships. It's the world of righteousness, faith, love, and peace with people. Yes, with all their faults and flaws, and we find in relationships what with others what real love is not in pixels and keyboards, 
but in flesh and blood human beings who are loved by God. And he says, pursue this along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. So notice this. In one verse, Paul tells us what to run away from, what to run towards, and and who to do it with. He tells us what to run away from, what to run towards, and who to do it with. And, And this who to do it with is just as important. Because we conquer, now listen, I'm, I'm talking to you. We conquer this parasite of lust together. We conquer by linking our arms in community, which is the opposite of what your flesh wants to do. Your flesh wants to get really hyper-private about this problem. But we do it in community by being open with each other, encouraging one another, keeping one another accountable, not hiding our sin in a private closet, We have to acknowledge that I need community. It is not just me and God. I was never meant to conquer this thing alone. I need community. I have to bring myself into community and not just the parts of me that I'm proud of. A lot of us are like, okay, I can handle community. I'll bring the parts into community, the parts that I'm proud of. It doesn't work. God God heals what you reveal. What you reveal God can heal. And so that's why community is so important. Together we pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. We conquer lust with love side by side. We conquer it with love. And love is not just a thought. It's between people, right? It's an action. So let's, let's look at some practical steps here for rebooting our our love. We want to reboot our love for others, reboot an authentic face-to-face love for other people. Uh, As we're walking side by side, we're open, we're being vulnerable with each other with our struggles and our sins and and our desire to love each other more perfectly. Here's some practical things I want to suggest here. And remember, we're doing this without judgment. We're doing this without shame, right? So someone comes to you and says, I need you to walk with this with me because here's where I struggle. Uh, we don't react in judgment or shame, right? We say, way to go, man, right? That was courageous. And now we're going to walk together. We're going to find, we're going to find healing together. Here's some practical steps. Number one, practice seeing people the way Jesus does. Practice seeing people the way Jesus does. View them the way Jesus does as priceless image bearers of God. Practice this. What do we mean? Don't just consider valuable or worth your time people you are naturally attracted to. You hear what I'm saying? There are people that you're going to be naturally attracted to, people who just don't fall on your radar. Don't use that as your basis for who is worth your time, who is valuable. Practice on everybody this this holy perspective. What happens is that it begins to influence your encounters with people that you would previously be tempted to lust over, okay? So people uh, with whom you wouldn't normally have uh, an attraction to or have a natural temptation for you or hold any physical attraction to you, practice holiness with them by saying, this is someone I am honored to be in the presence of because we are made in the image of God. I am honored to be in the presence of this person, right? Jesus died for them. How infinitely precious they are. Practice this. Practice it. This should be our primary, primary thought 
uh, for anybody that we meet. We're learning how to reboot our love for others. How to reboot our love for others. What happens when you do encounter then somebody who maybe you are, you do find yourself attracted to, do you know what you say in your mind there? The same thing. I am honored to be in the presence of this image bearer of God. They are precious, not because they are good looking, but because they are God's son or daughter. They're my brother or sister. That's what makes them precious. See, now it's desexualized, and this is a good thing. When you invite Jesus into your encounters with people that you come across, it transforms your thinking. So you're asking God, Lord, help me to see people beyond skin deep, beyond that. The answer to living in a, in a community of, of beautiful people, and I believe everybody in this room is beautiful, right? So the answer to living in a, in a community of beautiful people is not to go through life uh, as a hermit, or to leave the community, that's not the answer. It's to become a person of gratitude and others-centered love. That's the answer, right? Okay. I knew it was going to be quiet, so that doesn't even bother me. Number two, how to reboot our love for others. Learn to appreciate beauty without wanting to possess what isn't yours, because that's coveting. That's the definition of coveting. Learn to appreciate beauty without wanting to possess what isn't yours. Here's another area, I'll tell you, where, where women have something that they can teach men to grow up a bit, okay? Uh, a lot of men, for whatever reasons, we have trouble acknowledging beauty as beauty unless there is the potential for it to be sexualized. Uh, you know, one guy's like, oh, she's beautiful. The other guy's gonna be like, oh, yeah, oh, she's hot, right? And then one second later, they're like, mmm. Right? It's instantly gone to this weird place, right? All this sexual feeding fest of, of, of looking and all this. It, it's, it's looking at what's not yours and, and this desiring of what's not yours. For many men, that's the only way uh, we talk about beauty, unless we depersonalize it completely. You know, like, hey, that car is fine, right? Or did you see the game last night? That play was beautiful, right? But women in our culture uh, ha- have given themselves permission to celebrate beauty without it being sexualized. You notice this? They do that with each other. Women, you don't have to be a, a lesbian to be watching a, a red carpet show with your, with your friend and be like, oh, she's so beautiful, right? Oh, I love that dress she's wearing, right? Women talk this way. It's not sexualized. Uh, you just look at women, how, how they talk on Facebook or Instagram to each other or something like that. Girl, you're so beautiful. Oh, <laughs> Those shoes make you look gorgeous. You look hot in that. You are rocking that skirt. You know, they talk to each other this way. And they're not like, what do you mean by that? (laughs) Men don't do this, right? Men don't do this, right? I can't look at John and go, John, those pants are making your waist look awesome today. (laughs) How are you so handsome, man? Right? Man, looking good. That shirt. Mm. See, John won't talk to me for the rest of the week now. Uh, but women, women seem to know how to appreciate beauty, and it's not sexualized. Um, men, the thing is we don't have practice at it. We, we have not given ourselves permission to do that. Notice I didn't say men aren't capable. It's just not necessarily in the culture, our culture. So men, here's, here's what's great about this. Now I'm talking to you guys for a second. When you're finally able to do this, 
it enables you to do two things. Number one, it will enable you to pay another man a compliment without both of you collapsing in on yourselves like a dying star, <laughs> right? Oh, yeah, I can't believe that. More importantly, it will enable you eventually to be around women without your brain automatically going into sexual overdrive. And this is freedom, right? So men, you have a choice. You can either stare at the ground the rest of your life and pretend women don't exist, or consider that there may, just may, be a more healthy, human, and yes, even righteous response to other human beings. A healthy, human, righteous response, right? Viewing human beings as your brothers and sisters. We talked about that last week. See, it builds on each other. These, these ser- sermons build on each other. We're viewing each other as brothers and sisters. Viewing each other as brothers and sisters. Appreciate beauty without wanting to possess what isn't yours, without coveting it, without sexualizing it. You can do it, guys, by the way. I know you can. I've never met a man who wanted to sleep with a Ferrari. See what I'm saying? You can appreciate beauty without sexualizing it. And, And what we're talking about is, of course, something infinitely more uh, priceless and love-worthy, agape-worthy than a car. We're talking about a human being. Okay. Porn warps our soul. It turns us into consumers of other people. That's all it is. It's all, it's what it's all about. It's not an art. It's not an appreciation of beauty. It is consumption of a human being as a thing. And so we want to reject that idea. Embrace God's sacrificial love of people. So guys, how do you treat an attractive woman? Like a sister. Like your pretty sister. Right? Women, how do you treat an attractive guy? Like your brother. We're brothers and sisters. It doesn't have to get weird. We don't have to enact a whole bunch of weird rules of separation, right? Everybody just keep apart. You're all way too good looking for your own good. Everybody, men, will get over here. Women, over here. We don't have to do that right? There's a better way. Jesus and Paul both make it simple. Treat each other like family, right? Elevate everybody. Remember what we looked at last week? Elevate everyone to the status of family. You're all brothers and sisters. Amen. Now, here's the thing. If this is new for you, if you haven't been practicing this for a long time, and this, you know, this can take some practice. If it's new for you, it will take practice. You practice it until it becomes habitual for you. Practicing women as sisters, beautiful daughters of God, practicing men as brothers, beautiful sons of God. Get out of the habit of primarily assessing people by how attracted you are to them. Just get out of that habit. They're not yours, so stop feeding the old man. They're not yours to possess. And, and get, get out of this incessant desire to possess people or sexualize them. So guys, we can learn from our sisters here to be able to acknowledge beauty in somebody without being sexually attracted to them. It's a liberating idea. I know it's crazy, but it's a liberating idea. Number three, don't let failure define you. Don't let your failures define you. And don't let them become an excuse to give up. Hit the reset button. Learn to hit that reset button. Every moment that you live like Jesus is a moment of honor and worship. Find your identity in those moments. 
Every moment you choose to live like Jesus is a moment of honor and worship. So find your identity, find your pleasure in those moments. Let those moments define you. Now, I wish it weren't true, but guess what? Sometimes you may mess up. People mess up. You might have promised God. Maybe you, had a, maybe you have a, a, a problem with porn. You might have promised God. I mean, you promised him. And then only to feel the shame of failing. The, the Bible tells us about someone named Satan. And uh, he, he, the Bible calls Satan the accuser. And this is important. Do you know Satan is not a proper name? It's his title. The Bible calls him the Satan. It's the word for the accuser in an ancient court of law. He was the, he's the guy who is there to try to get the judge to find you guilty. He is the Satan, the accuser. And he's going to tell you something. He's going to tell you, you know what? This is just who you are. Failure and shame, these are your destiny. You might as well just give up, give in, and go with it. But it is a lie. If you have been purchased by Jesus, that is not your destiny. It's not your identity. And, and we have to let Jesus define who we are. And that's why I love, if you read over in Romans chapter 7, we find out Paul, the great Paul, struggled. He struggled. He fought this. He talks about how sin has always seemed to be dominating. He says, like, sin's dominating me. And I, I, you know, I want to do this, and I do this. I don't want to do this, and I end up doing that. And, and then he has this wake-up moment. He says it twice, actually. He says, I realize it's not I who sin. It's sin living in me who sins. It's not I. And the word I there is this, that ego. It's that Greek word ego. The true me. That's not the one who actually sins. It's sin living in me. So sin is like this parasite, he's saying. And you know what? I'm not going to define myself as the failure. I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. You are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. He has renewed you, right? So the real I am something different. I'm not made for this. I, I may have this parasite lingering with me that tries to get me to give in occasionally, but then I am going to stop and I'm going to say, no, I am giving myself another chance to honor God. I'm going to give myself another chance to honor God, to worship God. And even if it takes living moment by moment, I'm going to honor God. And God delights in all those moments that you don't fall into temptation. Those are beautiful moments. So let those define you. Let those moments define you. Number four, last one. Rebooting your love for others. Reject the modern entitlement of privacy. Thanks so much, Stephanie, for bringing this up, too. This was, that's really good. Share your devices with each other like family. Reject this modern entitlement of privacy. You know, at our house, in the Hill house, adults, kids, all of us uh, in the house, electronic devices, phones, iPads, that kind of thing, not allowed upstairs. They're all downstairs. They're all in the common areas. That's just, that's just the rule it's always been. We don't argue about it, right? It's not because we don't trust anybody. It's because we love each other so much. We love each other so much. So don't allow technology to hyper-privatize you. Share. Invite others in. Do this together, right? So this even crosses out of, 
across family lines, to other, other people, your friends. Don't let, and here, parents, again, don't let your kids, like, guilt you into granting them this imaginary entitlement of privacy of technology. It's an imaginary entitlement. Amen. Privacy of technology. And, and if you let your worry that, well, they might not like me or something like that, if you let that rise above your love for them, then you need to repent. There's, there should be nothing greater than your love for your children. And someday they'll thank you. Maybe not today, but they will. But find people you trust. Find brothers and sisters here in the church that, to be accountable with. You have, that, you have that opportunity through home life groups, through small groups, through your friends and family. But listen, this is so important. I really mean this. You're not designed to reboot yourself and move in a whole different direction on your own. You're just not programmed to do it on your own. A lot of people try, but you're not designed to do that. So stop trying. Tell your, I'm telling you right now that it's wasted effort. Connect yourself with one another. You've got to connect yourself with someone. We can do this together. Amen? Amen. Well, today, as we close, I want to pray, and we're going to ask God to help us live counterculturally. I think we can. I think Generations Church can be an oasis. of We can be a light to the world, a proof that the statistics don't have to be the case, right? You know, the statistics say there are more men addicted to porn in the church than out of the church. It's true. That's weird. It doesn't have to be the case. Do you know why that is? Because church religion often brings with it shame. And shame drives us underground. It makes us hyper-privatized stuff in a way that the world doesn't even have that shame. So we should be better because we don't live in shame. We live in love. So push back against this tendency to hyper-privatize our lives, to, hi to live these lives of secret keeping, these lives that divide us, turn us into lonely, neurotic people. We don't need that. I also want to pray for healing today. Uh, for those who may be feeling the Holy Spirit's conviction, you might be here and you're feeling the conviction to say no more to the destruction that porn brings, to close that laptop, to put away the phone, step outside and engage men and women as fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen? Amen. Our prayer partners, you can come on down forward as I pray. Hallelujah. Heavenly Father, I'm so grateful today for the fact that you have made us beautiful, priceless, unique human beings. And you created us as sexual creatures, Lord. And while this comes with a whole set of problems in a fallen world, may we not revert to hiding or secret keeping about our struggles, but may we be honest and open with each other. I rebuke I rebuke the spirit of lust that has attached itself to some of the people in this room. I rebuke the devil and his lies, and I command you to flee in Jesus' name. And Lord, I celebrate your love for all of us and the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. I pray that we would be a people who are passionate for the unity of the church, for the community you've called us to here. Lord, that we would be excited to share this journey with each other. 
And I look forward to what your spirit is going to accomplish in each of us this week. We praise you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If there's anything in the world that you need prayer about, be sure and come forward and get these guys to pray with you in faith. If there's, whether it's about this issue or another issue, uh, something you just need someone to stand in faith with you, come up, let them stand with you. They will rejoice and uh, the prayer of faith, it's amazing. It will save the sick, hallelujah. Have a great week. Go forth and conquer in love, hallelujah. Thank you for listening. Be sure to visit gchurch.net for more information about this podcast and other resources.